Our scripture reading this morning, first of all, is found in 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus unto the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God, to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of his power. When he shall come to be glorified in his saints, and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Wherefore also we pray always for you, that our Lord, our God, would count you worthy of this calling, and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness, and the work of faith with power that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and ye in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So far we read in 2 Thessalonians, and then we turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, just a few verses from chapter 4 beginning at verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, to the end of the chapter. But I would not have you be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you, by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep, that is, those who have died. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these 
words. So far we read God's holy word. The basis of that and many other passages of God's word is the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 19. There in question 50, the Catechism asks, Why is it added and sitteth at the right hand of God? And the answer, because Christ is ascended into heaven for this end, that he might appear as head of his church, by whom the Father governs all things. What profit is this glory of Christ, our head, unto us? First, that by his Holy Spirit he pours out heavenly graces upon us, his members, and then that by his power he defends and preserves us against all enemies. What comfort is it to thee that Christ shall come again to judge the quick and the dead? That in all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head, I look for the very same person who before offered himself for my sake to the tribunal of God and has removed all curse from me, to come as judge from heaven, who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but shall translate me with all his chosen ones to himself unto heavenly joys and glory. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, we come in this Lord's Day really to the climax of Jesus' work and the final step of his exaltation. The Catechism has been expounding the work of Jesus Christ, the saving work that he accomplished, first of all, in his humiliation, in his lowly birth, in his suffering, in his death, his burial, and his descent into hell. That was the work of redeeming his people. That included his work of giving himself to the cross and bearing the wrath of God against our sins. That included his perfect life of obedience in this life. That by his perfect obedience and by his suffering and death, he would earn for us a righteousness which is imputed to us and save us from our sins. This then was completed by, God, by Jesus entering into death, going even into the grave, and then conquering the power of both. God consequently then raised Jesus up from the dead, his exaltation. This was God's reward to Jesus for his tremendous humiliation. God then raised Jesus up, lifting him up out of the grave bringing him up to heaven, ascending into heaven, coming into heaven with triumph, with the sound of trumpets and, and the welcome of a hero. Jesus had accomplished our salvation. He goes into heaven and God sits him down right at his own right hand and makes him to be the ruler of heaven and earth. And from that place, Jesus is preparing to come again. The exaltation is a reward that God gives to Jesus, 
But through every one of those steps of exaltation, he is also working out our salvation. He accomplished our salvation in his humiliation, and now in his exaltation, he is working out our salvation. Consider that the resurrection is not only Jesus being exalted, but it's Jesus breaking the power of the grave, and the power of death, and it's the certainty of our blessed resurrection. Jesus' ascension means that he appears now before the very face of God as our advocate, and he makes intercession for us before God's throne. And from that throne, he is ruling, protecting his people, and governing all things in heaven and earth, gathering his people out of the nations unto himself. And that brings us to the last step of his, his exaltation, his coming again to judge. The sermon this morning is going to look at the exaltation of Jesus, but especially with that in view, the coming again to judge. Because God is, God has exalted Jesus. That's his final exaltation, that he is on his way and that he will come and that he will execute judgment. So let's look at this Lord's Day then from that point of view, taking as the theme of Jesus, the, the theme, looking for his coming, looking for his coming. Well, notice in the first place, the certain coming, secondly, the righteous judgment, and finally, the everlasting dwelling. Looking for his coming, the certain coming, the righteous judgment, and the everlasting dwelling. Jesus is coming right now. Jesus is coming right now. You have to understand that's the way the scriptures speak of it. Jesus has been coming since the moment that God set him down at the, on the throne. Let me illustrate that for a moment. When the Lord gives you a minister, when you extend a call to someone and he accepts that call, at that moment you could say to someone who hadn't heard the news, Reverend so-and-so is coming. They would say, coming? Is he going to walk in the door here? He'd say, no, no, no. But he is coming. And there's things he has to do where he's at. He has to finish his work there. He has to pack up. And he has to move. But he is coming. And that's the way you have to think of Jesus. He is coming. He's preparing the coming. Everything that he has to do, he is accomplishing in order that he may one day appear in person in the clouds of heaven. He is coming. He is coming according to God's eternal plan, just as his first coming was perfectly planned by God. From the moment that Adam sinned, from that moment, God was saying, my son is coming. The Messiah is coming. So God directed the whole course of history toward that coming of Jesus. The flood, Abraham, Israel, David's line. God directing the apostasy in Israel and the captivity of Babylon. God directing 
that Israel would be brought back and Rome would be the ruler. God directing so that the line, the royal line of David came down to Mary. God directing all of those things. And when everything had occurred that God wanted to occur, the fullness of time, says Galatians 4, in the fullness of time, when time was full, Jesus came. God had prepared everything, and Jesus came into the earth. So likewise, Jesus has been directing all things and continues to direct all things to the goal of his coming again. I'd like to give you five different ways that Jesus is directing everything toward his coming again. First of all, he is directing all things toward the kingdom of Antichrist. All of the history of this New Testament is geared toward that, toward the glorious, earthly, wicked kingdom of the Antichrist. Christ gave men, he's the one who gives wisdom and understanding, he gave men understanding to be able to develop the powers of the creation with a view to the kingdom of man. The ability to subdue the power of water and the power of fire. The ability to develop tools so that they could investigate and develop the powers of the creation. A telescope to look at the stars, microscopes to look at the smallest particles. Jesus directed those things so that man could take control of the creation and bring it under his control, develop it, all the things that we see around us, to develop the power of steam and then of electricity and then of the atom. And in the proper time and place, Christ directs all things so that men built ships and railroads and airplanes and rockets that go out into space. Men developed as Jesus directed it so that he, they developed communication, telegraph and telephone and internet and the cell phones. Jesus directed the whole direction, the, the development of technology in medicine and in industry and the technology of war. Jesus from his throne is directing all things so that men will have tremendous power and be able to establish a kingdom of man. Jesus rules. That in the first place. Secondly, Jesus directs the whole course of history. The whole course of history toward the coming of that kingdom of Antichrist. All war is directed by him. All antagonism, the conquest of one nation of, of, of another. We look at the war of Russia and Ukraine and we shudder and think how horrible, how evil. And yes, it is. War is evil. But Jesus Christ is directing that too. He's in full control. Men built up their arms so that they had weapons that could destroy the world and they know they can't even use them because they would destroy civilization if they would use their weapons against each other. And in the end, the world becomes so tired of war that they'll say, give us peace at all cost. Peace at all cost. And that will mean 
one kingdom, one kingdom of man. That's the only way we're going to be able to eliminate war. The only way we'll be able to get rid of these terrorists who can run from one place to another. The only way that we can eliminate shortages from one part of the world and a different part of the world. We need to have one world government. and They will select a man who's their savior, someone who will promise that they can, he can take care of all these evils and he will be their savior. Jesus is directing all things to that goal. He's directing all things to that, the, the wound of the beast. When at Babel, God smote the people so that they could not talk to each other anymore, divided the world into different cultures, that wound is being healed so that we can communicate with people all over the world. There can be that one kingdom. He is directing all things toward the kingdom. He's directing the course of history. He's also directing, thirdly, the course of church history. Church history. Sovereignly, Jesus rules. In the Middle Ages, Jesus caused the church to develop into really what was a precursor of the final horrible church that Babylon, that Revelation calls the whore. In the, in the Middle Ages, you see exactly what she will look like, where the worship is completely idolatrous, not of God, but of idols where the gospel is not preached any longer, but it's all up to you. Works, righteousness. Where the sacraments are so corrupted that you could not even see Christ in the sacraments of the church. Where discipline was corrupted so that the church rulers only used it against those who offended them, not those who were walking in impenitent sin. The church of the Middle Ages served the purpose, the political purposes and goals of power to make herself rich. Jesus directed that so that we would have a sense of what will the final Antichrist, the, the church of the Antichrist look like, the whore of Babylon. Look at the Middle Ages. That's where you will see what the church will look like in the end. But Jesus didn't stop there because it wasn't time yet. And so he reformed the church through Luther and Calvin and Knox and the leaders in England and in France and in the Netherlands. He directed this. But then he also directed that the church would be splintered into thousands of denominations and independent churches so that they could not become one. And now he's directing them to come together. Protestants joining with Protestants, Rome joining with Protestants, and eventually Muslims and Jews and Protestants and everyone will be in one church to serve the Antichrist. That will be indeed the great whore, totally apostate, completely devoted to evil, Desiring also that everyone will serve the Antichrist. That's what the false church will do. The, the great whore of Babylon will say to the people, worship him, worship that man, worship the Antichrist. So Jesus is directing everything toward the anti-Christian kingdom. He's governing the history of this world. He's governing the church history of the world. And in the fourth place, Jesus is governing all evils. Well, I'm, I'm, that is a very broad term there. I mean, first of all, the evils that come upon this world, all the judgments that come. 
the destructions, the, the, the catastrophes of this world, the political unrest, the fighting between men, the fighting between genders and races. And he's directing the evil that abounds. Every new invention that man comes up with as Jesus directs it, man then takes that invention and sins in ways he couldn't do before. So that sin begins to abound and it grows. They develop the ability to take pictures and then to have moving pictures and then to have the filth of the world glorified in their movies. Jesus is directing that. Such violent iniquity grows that Christ gives men over into their sin so that they commit sins that are unnatural, such as homosexuality or changing from a man to a woman or a woman to a man. Unthinkable evil. But that's because the cup of iniquity must be filled so that everyone will see what is the vile nature of man. Jesus is directing all evil. But that is not even the most important work. The driving force for the coming of Jesus Christ is number five, the preaching of the gospel. That's the most important thing. Jesus is directing the preaching of the gospel to the nations. Christ gave to his disciples the great commission. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, he said to them. And then he directed it from Jerusalem, north and west, into Asia Minor, and then into Europe, from Europe into America. From America, it continues to go into the eastern countries. Jesus directs all that. He's gathering his church out of the nations, according to the plan of God. One holy Catholic Church out of the nations. This is the most important work that Jesus is doing from his throne on heaven. He told his disciples that. He said, when the gospel has gone to the nations, then shall the end come. And you can see why that is, because when the last elect person has been born into this world and then gathered into the church by the preaching of the gospel, there's no more purpose. The church is gathered. There's no more purpose to the nations and no more purpose to this world. Then shall the end come, Jesus said to his disciples. Through all of these five things then, Jesus is coming. That's the point. He's directing all these things. From his throne in heaven, he's coming through these things. But then there will be that final glorious coming, bodily coming, on the clouds of heaven, Jesus will come. He will come at the time appointed by his Father. Again, when time is full, when everything that God has determined will happen, when it has happened, time is full. And Jesus will come as God directs it. His coming will be totally unexpected by man. He will come, as it were, as a thief in the night when no one expects it. That's when 
Jesus will come. It will be a glorious coming. A coming in power. Not as he came the first time as a lowly and impotent baby, helpless. No, now he will come as Lord of Lords, King of Kings. He'll come with his angels with him, accompanying. He'll come with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of his saints who are already in heaven, who are sharing in his glorious coming. Then all the believers that are on the earth will be caught up together with him in the clouds. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Every eye will see him at the same time. The way you can be anywhere here in northwest Iowa and, and anyone can see the thunder, the, the, rather the lightning that, that goes across the sky. We can all see it. So when Jesus comes, every eye will see him. Every eye. The reactions will be amazing too. It will be a great sorrow, a day of terrible sorrow and terror for the ungodly. Here they are. In the greatest kingdom that man has ever established in all the history of man. Though it will be, Revelation says, it will be in the process of crumbling because they will be rising up even then. Oh, they had a time of peace and prosperity. There will be a crumbling. that They will come against each other to war because Jesus directs that too so that they will know a kingdom of man will never stand. It cannot triumph. But they have nonetheless experienced that time of prosperity. And now Jesus comes. The wicked will be filled with terror. They imagined they are finished with him. They've gotten rid of anybody that confessed the name of Jesus Christ. If there's anybody out there, they're in hiding. They have banished his name from their kingdom. But now they know when Jesus comes, they're finished. They're absolutely finished. They will cry out for the mountains and the rocks to cover them from the face of Jesus in their terror, in their terror. On the other hand, God's people will be filled with the greatest joy. The catechism says, with uplifted head, with uplifted head, we look for the one who offered himself on, for, for my sake. With uplifted head. The Savior, the Redeemer, the Lord, is come. Coming to save his people. We can scarcely imagine what it's like for those people, what it will be like for God's people in that day. Some of us may even be alive to witnesses. It's very possible. Things are moving so quickly. God's people, driven like rats into hiding, knowing that if they were discovered at that moment, they would be dragged out, they would be killed, just like that. They know that. That's what their life has been. And in the next moment, the sound of a trumpet, the voice of the archangel and Jesus, and their enemies scattering in terror. And there's Jesus coming on the clouds. 
Joy and triumph. Joy and triumph. When Jesus comes in that triumphant coming, he will raise up the body of every person who has ever lived. Billions upon billions upon billions of people whose bodies are resurrected, joined together with their souls, whether it's the souls of God's people, a resurrection unto life, or the souls of the ungodly, a resurrection unto damnation. And all these people will stand before Jesus Christ in the tribunal, in his seat of judgment. These billions upon billions upon billions of people will stand before Jesus Christ. And there Christ will execute the righteous judgment. That's the second thing we consider, God's righteous judgment. The judgment is God's. We read of that judgment in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. When Jesus shall be revealed, verse 7, from heaven with his mighty angels, verse 8, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. The question is, what do you think of Jesus? That's ultimately the question. They reject him. And if you reject Jesus, you reject God. And there will be a terrible judgment on those who reject God and his son. God has appointed Jesus to be the judge of all men who have ever lived. He is the representative of God as he sits upon that throne in judgment. That's fitting. That's fitting because of the work that he did as the mediator. Again, because he humbled himself to the very depths of hell. God raises him up. And, and this is the climax. This is the climax. <clears throat> Jesus coming in the clouds of heaven. Jesus sitting upon the throne, executing judgment. This is the climax of God's exaltation of Jesus. But it's fitting not only because of his humiliation, but because through his humiliation, he purchased his people unto himself. It's fitting then that he be the one that says, you're on this side, and you are on that side. Pulling his people out from among the billions and billions and billions, his own people, an innumerable host, cannot even be counted. As, as you can't count the sand, you, you will not be able to count the number of people who are going to heaven but everyone will face Jesus. His people, with unspeakable gratitude and joyful worship, and the ungodly reprobate with terror and bitter remorse. Not repentance. It's not a remorse because we know now we've sinned against God and that was a terrible thing, but a remorse because the consequences are about to be visit, visited upon them. In a sense, you can say, with Jesus on the throne, he's already executing judgment. He is. 
From his throne, he beholds and judges the ungodly. He brings the consequences of their sins upon them. When a man sins and think bad things happen, it isn't just a natural thing. Jesus is visiting the judgment upon that man for his sin. He visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, as we read in the law this morning. He judges sin with more sin in their lives. They are taken over by it. The ungodly become more and more hardened against God and against their fellow man. They are more and more enslaved to sin and go deeper and deeper into it. That's his judgment. On the other hand, on the other hand, God's people experience the very opposite. God's favor is upon them. They are justified. They have peace with God already now, even through the troubles and the trials and even the sins of this world. We are justified and the love of God floods our hearts. We know we are loved by God. And we enjoy covenant life and all the blessings that God, Jesus, has accomplished in this cross. We don't have the fullness of them, of course not. But we have them in principle. We have the joy of heaven. We have eternal life within us. So as I say, from a certain point of view, the judgment is already being executed. Jesus from his throne on heaven is already executing judgment. But there has to be that final judgment. That last terrible final judgment. What that will be like is very difficult for us to grasp. Certain things we know. Everyone must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Every single angel, every devil, every man, woman, and child who has ever lived, even if only a little while in the womb, everyone will appear before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. A clear difference will be made between the elect and the reprobate. That will be obvious. They will be separated from each other. The verdict will be clear. Jesus will say to the elect, you are righteous in my blood. You are justified. You have the right to heaven. And he will say to the reprobate, you are condemned, depart from me, I never knew you. There's a a definite difference between the sheep and the goats that will be made in that judgment. And even, even we are told that the elect will then join Christ somehow in condemning the ungodly. They will be involved in the judgment of angels, not condemning them, but in the judgment of angels and of the ungodly. Somehow the church will be part of that. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says that. So there are certain things we can know, but there are other things so difficult for us to to get a hold of. There has to be an internal judgment in the hearts of men so that they will be convicted of their sin. But there also has to be something more external. 
because the hypocrisies of men must be exposed and condemned in the judgment. The external part, that external judgment, if everyone would just stand there and have a conviction in their heart, we can say, all right, that, that I can understand. But somehow, how is this public judgment to be done when you have that many people? You, you think of the space, you think of the time, you, and, and we just, we don't know. We don't know what it's going to be like. And the Bible doesn't give us a lot of details. The Belgian Confession the very last article of the Belgic Confession does say something about the judgment. That's Article 37, found on page 54 in the back of the Psalter. It talks about how Christ will come. And then in that second paragraph, then it says this, Then all men will personally appear before the great judge, both men, women, and children, that have been from the beginning of the world to the end thereof, being summoned by the voice of the archangel and by the sound of the trumpet of God. For all the dead shall be raised out of the earth, and their souls shall be joined and united with the proper bodies in which they formerly lived. As for those that have, shall be living, they shall not die, and so on. And then it says, Then the books, that is to say the consciences, shall be opened, and the dead judged, according to what they have, shall have done in this world, whether it be good or evil. Nay, now this is amazing, it's right out of the Bible. Nay, all men shall give an account of every idle word that they have spoken, which the world only counts amusement and jest. And then the secrets and the hypocrisies of men shall be disclosed and laid open before all. So you see there's a... There's an internal conviction in the heart, the books, the consciences will be open, and we will see our life. We will see our sins as we never have seen our sins before. And yet there's, there's something about giving account for every word. This is a real judgment. It is a terror for the ungodly, and yet it's desirable. It's, it's something that the child of God can actually look forward to. It, it isn't as if we can, we're approached to the throne and, and we'll be terrified and say, no, no, what, what, what's all going to be exposed of my life? Of course, we're going to be, recognize our sins, but we're not going to be terrified because of Jesus, because the very one who's our judge is the one that purchased us. But the point of this judgment is to show God's righteousness. God's righteousness and His perfect justice from the first day of creation to the last day of creation. God's perfect justice is what must come out in this judgment. That in everything God did in all of history, he was right. There are times that a wicked man receives a judgment already in this life. And everyone says, well, he got what he deserved. 
But there are many others who live wicked lives. And Psalm 73 says, they die in peace. They're terribly wicked and, and they die as though nothing's wrong. Well, God, in his judgment, will show why. Why did he do deal that way? Why did he judge this man and, and let this man seemingly go almost without trouble? A believer may suffer greatly in this life, and so that we might even say, why so much trouble? Why so much sorrow and trouble in this person's life? And it, there isn't any reason that we can see, and, and yet in the judgment God will say, I was just here. I wasn't necessarily punishing that man. Maybe it's like Job. I had a different reason for giving him all those evils. It wasn't because he was an evil person. But the point is, in the judgment, all this will be made clear. It will all be made clear. And God will show me and you you, everyone, as you were going through life, and this is how you were living, I was always dealing with you righteously. When you started to stray, did you now look back at your life and you see how things were not going well? And you see how I brought you back? And do you see that when you were excited about spiritual things, and you, you love the Word of God, you see how I was blessing you? Though you didn't even deserve it, because look at all your sins. You didn't deserve it, but I was still blessing you. Do you see that? We're going to see that in the judgment day. But how, I have to admit, I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we know, no, we do know, we will see our sins as never before. We'll see how dreadful and vile we were. And then in that light, see all the more what an amazing thing Jesus did when he died for our sins. They will sing, we will sing God's praises and the praises of our Savior with far more gratitude than we ever sang them here in church. Far more gratitude. And yet, remember, we'll have confidence there. It's not trouble. It's not sorrow. It's not that we come trembling in fear because Jesus is our judge. But the ungodly, they will be condemned for their sin and their guilt. They will confess. They will confess that they deserve the punishment they're getting. They will say that. They will honor God. They will honor Jesus Christ. They will bow the knee to Jesus. They will confess that Jesus is Lord. But you understand, they will not give proper worship. They will not give proper worship. It will not come out of a heart of love. It will not come out of a heart of gratitude. Nonetheless, they will confess and acknowledge God is God. He deserves all praise. We are to be condemned. They will say that. 
That judgment will lead then, in the third place, to the everlasting dwelling. The Catechism expresses it this way, that first of all, Jesus will cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation. Everlasting condemnation. This is, of course, widely denied that there is a place of everlasting condemnation. The world obviously denies it. The world doesn't want to hear anything about hell. They want to live as they please and then say, well, yeah, but after I die, it's all done. It, th then I don't exist. There's nothing after this life. Or they invent some kind of a heaven that they can go and enjoy whatever they did here in this life. If they love fishing, oh, I'll get to fish forever. If they like good food, they'll be able to have good food. If they like basketball, they'll be able to play basketball. That's not what's going to happen after death. They deny that there is a hell. But in the church, too, you find people denying that there is a hell. They do it in many different ways. Perhaps you've heard this. Arguments are raised against hell saying, how could God, who is a God of love, put people into everlasting torment? See, that doesn't fit with their God. So they deny the hell. Or some claim it's incompatible with God's justice, that people would sin for six years, 60 years, and then spend an eternity in hell? How does, that, how does that match God's justice? Still others teach that those who are in hell will have an opportunity to repent and, and then get out of hell. They'll have that opportunity. Or eventually, if they do not repent, that Jesus will just annihilate them. They'll cease to exist but they don't want to preach an everlasting hell. Still others insist that everyone will eventually be in heaven. And the common teaching is that this place, earth, will be the heaven. Everyone would finally be here on this earth, and it will be heaven. And they explain it something like this. Heaven will be a place where Jesus rules and love rules. And anybody who's governed by love, they will be in harmony with Jesus and they will love the place. It will be thoroughly joy for them. But those who do not love, they will be miserable underneath the king of love. And that's their hell. But someday, they will themselves recognize, I don't need to be miserable. I might as well love too, like everyone else does. And then everyone will love and it will be a wonderful place. Heaven on earth. If that sounds silly to you, it shouldn't sound terribly silly to anybody who goes to Dort College because that's what they teach. Subdue this world to the power of Jesus Christ. And even soul sleep. Those who have died, their souls are sleeping. And when when we have perfected this world, we made it a, a beautiful place, Jesus will come back and the souls will come back and, and we can all live here and it will be heaven right here on earth. Now, they don't want to be quite that blunt, quite that obvious, but that is 
what Christian colleges teach, including Dort. Scripture says that's all wrong. There is a place called hell, a place of eternal punishment. We read it in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, eternal punishment. The same word eternity that is applied to God. God is eternal. Their punishment is eternal. It is a place of torment, unspeakably terrible punishment of body and soul. And the people in hell know, I will never get out of this. That, that should make your heart tremble a bit. Not, not because you have to be afraid that you're going to hell, but just the thought that there are people who are already there, people who are going there, who are under the terrible wrath of God, and they will never escape it. The punishment is eternal because sin is so horrible. That's why, that, that's part of our problem. We don't think sin is all that bad. People, ungodly, do not merely sin, you understand, they do, but they always choose to sin. This is their life. Rebellion against God. Rebellion against His commandments. Tell them a commandment and they'll want to break it. That's our nature. We have the grace of God, but without the grace of God, that's all they are. Pure evil. Devoted to sin. Devoted to rebelling against God. They defy their Creator, the King of the universe. And this sin against God deserves eternal punishment. It's against God. It's against their Creator. It's against the God who upholds them minute by minute, and they consciously, deliberately sin against this God. They're worthy of eternal punishment. That's their eternal dwelling place. But the Catechism says for us, but he shall translate me with all his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joys and glory. The full development of that can wait until you get to, I believe, in the life everlasting. But some things to be said about that. First of all, who will be translated? His chosen ones. The elect. Chosen from all eternity. And I absolutely love, and I hope you recognize how important those two words are. He shall translate me with all his chosen ones to himself. To himself. Heaven's joy is being where Jesus is. 
if it isn't possible, but, but if, consider for a moment, if Jesus is not there, Jesus died and he's gone, and we all get to go to heaven, and, it, and it's a beautiful place, and we will enjoy it, but if Jesus is not there, there's something missing. The very heart of life there would be missing. Our joy is not merely to go into a place where there's no sin or suffering or death. Our joy is to go where Jesus is. That's heaven. He will take us to himself. And that, that not only shows the importance of what heaven is for us, but it shows us how important his work is when Jesus sits upon his throne and he's ruling and he's governing, directing all things toward his second coming, it's not a matter of Jesus kind of just doing it like a businessman. He's running his business and making sure everything. Jesus is so devoted to this work. It's a work of passion because he cannot wait to take us unto himself. That's what he's doing. That's what he's working for. Into heavenly joy and glory. That's our eternal dwelling place. The joy of living with God. The joy of receiving, partaking of the glory that Christ has. Partaking of his glory because we're part of his body and will rule with Him. These, these truths are not merely things that it's good for us to think about, remember. These are foundational for our lives. They need to govern our lives. A final judgment will be held. Evil will be punished. It will be condemned. The good will be rewarded. That, that's, that's our life. We, we live with that in mind. Men who have sinned against you and it seems they have gotten away with it, they will not. They will not get away with it. They will be judged. Vengeance is mine, God said. Not yours, not mine. Vengeance is his. He will repay. Of that you can be sure. This knowledge also gives us understanding of life. Jesus is on the throne. We don't understand why this happens or that happens, but one thing I know, I don't have to worry about it because Jesus is directing it. There's a purpose. And he's controlling all things toward his coming, toward the time when he can take us unto himself. He is ruling as king. So when the wicked triumph, when people attack his church, all that's under Jesus' control. You and I don't have to be concerned about that at all. The truth of the second coming is the foundation of our hope. This life is not all there is. There is another life. And we will someday be delivered from this life when Jesus comes to take us unto himself. So we live in hope 
Hope of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Watching, praying, longing for His coming. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy abounding goodness to us, giving us a Savior, Jesus Christ, who not only accomplished our full salvation in the cross, but who continues to work without ceasing, day and night, for His second coming and our full deliverance. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.